prior to Obamacare's passage, we had a certain number of doctors and nurses and hospital beds and, and all the other inputs to medicine, and we had a bunch of recipes for combining them into care. The ACA passed. We didn't really change very much about how much we had in the way of resources or what we did with them. People who were against the ACA said, let's reorganize it a different way. But for the most part, most of the plans, including most of the Republican plans, Medicare for all, really want to do the same thing, which is just sort of jumble around what we've already got. Welcome back to the Mercatus Policy Downloads What's on Tap. We are changing up the schedule a little bit and leading off with our What's on Tap segment today. So I am joined a little sooner than usual by co-host Kate Delanoy, and we are drinking New Belgium's Passion Fruit Kolsch. Very warm weather, seasonally appropriate. I will go ahead and pour that. But before we cheers to our drink of choice, I do have something to share with our listeners. This is my final week at the Mercatus Center after just shy of eight and a half long, wonderful years. I'm taking my talents to the Institute for Justice, uh, not South Beach. I kind of wish. I'll try to get to South Beach at some point during the summer. Uh, As policy manager for their activism team, I'm going to exercise host privilege a little bit here, uh, take the opportunity to say it's been an incredible ride. Been fortunate to work with some of the smartest, most passionate and creative people in the policy world, I think it's fair to say. Uh, My first supervisor here actually half-jokingly told me that working here for about five years is the equivalent of an econ master's degree, uh, which, Allie, I have to say, I think you are right. Everyone here is always learning, always asking questions, and trying to get just a little bit better. In fact, it's a good transition because we'd like to prove that claim when it comes to the Mercatus Policy Download. And we're going to leave its fate up to you, dear listeners, uh, so be kind. If you've loved the show, want to hear more, have a particular topic that MPD helped you understand better, please, please, please email our producer, Dallas, at dfloor, that's D-F-L-O-E-R, at mercatus.gmu.edu with your contact info and or why you'd like MPD to continue what you'd like to see more of, what you'd like to see less of. Your feedback really will make a difference going forward. If we receive enough thoughtful and undeniable responses, Dallas and the production team will determine where to go from here and how we can continue providing listeners with the content that you want to hear. So for now, I'm going to end the sappy stuff, and we're going to move along to the fun things that are still going on at Mercatus, whether or not I'm in the building. So Kate, let us know what's happening. Yes, well, this is going to be even more important to you now because you're not going to be surrounded by it all the time. So you better check all these things out. Exactly. Coming up. We have a new policy brief out today. It's by a couple of folks written for our monetary policy program. And it's looking at the difference between nominal GDP targeting versus price level targeting. So if you're at all a rules-based monetary policy person, and if you know what that phrase means, then you are. <laughs> you, you are the audience for this paper. <laughs> Definitely recommend checking that one out. Something that's a little bit broader in scope is a upcoming paper from Alex Tabarrok, Why Are the Prices So Damn High?, and that one's looking at the prices of things like education and healthcare, and really, you know, why are prices continuing to rise? And what they find is that it's not so much bloat or administrative costs, things that a lot of times kind of get the blame, but really it's rising labor costs. Well, I don't know if you knew this, but we are getting ready to have a conversation with a couple of folks on healthcare policy, and we're going to be talking a little bit about rising costs. So perfect timing. Excellent. Also on healthcare, next week's Conversations with Tyler episode is with Ezekiel Emanuel. So listeners might know him as kind of the the architect of Obamacare. So it's an interesting conversation, and I encourage everybody to check it out. 
And then since we are going to be taking a little bit of a break going on hiatus, I'll just use this opportunity to remind folks that Bruce Yandel's quarterly economic situation report will be out June 3rd, since that's a Monday. So reminder to go check that out. It's always full of good, insightful stuff. Please do. Bruce Yandel, in addition to being a brilliant economist, also one of the best human beings in the world, I think it's fair to say. Yes, a true gentleman and scholar. Never before has the label been more aptly applied. With all those updates, I think we're ready to move on to our toast. What do you think about the New Belgium passion fruit Kolsch? I am a little torn. I tend to like Kolsch's, but this has a very strong nose that I'm not – it doesn't even come through as much in the in drinking it, but I'm not sure I can really – get over that. Yeah. And I'm not at the beach yet. That's still a few weeks out. So <laughs> I jumped the gun. <laughs> I I think I'm going to give it 2.75. Okay. Uh I I'm I'm sympathetic to that. I think when I when I was pouring the the taster glasses here, I was expecting to drink juice. It is not that. It's like a little tart, a little hoppier actually mm-hmm. than I expected. This is almost like a slightly fruited pale ale. I don't get a lot of the like clean Kolsch that I kind of expected. Yes. Um, this is like solidly a, a three out of five for me. I don't hate it. I would drink this by the pool. But you're right. Maybe I should have, you know, held off on this. This would have been a great like <laughs> summer beer if I were still going to be around in the summer. But important reminder there, again, I want to make sure our listeners do get some feedback to Dallas. So since I will not be here come July or June or those summer months, uh, make sure you do email Dallas. That's dflor, D-F-L-O-E-R, at mercatus.gmu.edu. Do let us know what you've thought about the show, including today's episode that's coming up just in a second. But until then, I want to say... Appreciate it, Kate. It's been great. It has. And I will say, you know, I worked with you for seven of those eight and a half years. I'm so sorry. (laughs) It's been great. And I'm looking forward to see what's coming next. So cheers to you, Chad. Cheers, ma'am. Few words are more politically and emotionally charged in Washington than healthcare. Just as the Affordable Care Act was hitting a decade or so of nearly continuous debate, so-called Medicare for All proposals have become the latest battleground for healthcare policy wonks. Even beneath those big-picture headline debates, other smaller but still important questions swirl around the healthcare world, including issues like prescription drug pricing. I am not a gambling man, but if forced, I'd probably bet that the looming 2020 election season isn't going to do much to end the country's existential debate on what healthcare should look like, meaning these fights aren't going away anytime soon. But that doesn't mean we can't make some progress or at least shed a little bit of light on them. Here to do that, I'm joined by a couple of healthcare policy experts. First up, Tara O'Neill-Hayes, Deputy Director of Healthcare Policy at the American Action Forum. Tara's work focuses on health insurance costs and coverage, including Medicare, Medicaid, and all the other issues that come along with it. Tara also spent some time as a congressional staffer covering healthcare and budget issues. Thanks for joining the show, Tara. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Next, I'm pleased to welcome back to the show Bob Grayboys. The last time we caught up with Bob, we were talking about medical drones, so we're glad he's willing to come back and both continue and broaden that discussion a bit. Bob is a senior research fellow and healthcare scholar here at Mercatus and has years of experience researching and teaching the economics of healthcare. Welcome back, Bob. Glad to be here. I mentioned kind of right up front that Medicare for All has kind of become the latest ground zero in the healthcare policy world. So it's probably right for us just to start there. That might be where a lot of our listeners are kind of coming from. For those listeners who may not have been following this issue as closely as you all have, certainly, what do we even mean when we say Medicare for All? What, what, what is that phrase? 
Yeah, it's a great first question. Um, I think the problem is that no one necessarily means exactly the same thing when they say that. I think it could mean anything from literally taking our existing Medicare program, you know, by name, the services covered, all of that, and making everyone in the country eligible for it. I think that's the most kind of common sense interpretation of those words. Um, But I think for a lot of people, it also is just kind of a substitute for quote unquote single payer. I think it also for some people just means universal coverage, which plenty of countries in the world have achieved universal coverage, not through single payer, but through multi-payer, even if run primarily and um, almost exclusively by the government. There still is a role in some of those countries for private insurers. And so it really can mean a lot of different things. I think for me, my personal feelings is that you know, I think the overall goal, the objective is to achieve universal coverage. And there's a lot of ways that you can do that. So, so that's how I kind of approach the conversation. And I'd say in the 2019 parlance, what it primarily means, and there are lots of variations on it, is take uh, today's current Medicare, scrap it, get rid of it, throw it away. Do the same with uh, employer-sponsored insurance that about half the country has, get rid of it. Take Medicaid, get rid of it. Take all of these programs, with the exception of a couple of tiny programs, the Indian Health Service and Veterans Affairs, get rid of all these things and start something entirely new that doesn't look like anything we've ever had, and frankly, doesn't look like anything any country has ever had. And therein lies some serious challenges. Fairly put. I I think there might be two ways, very broadly speaking, to kind of frame how we got to this point, uh, and the, specifically the rising interest in Medicare for all. The first is that the last several years of healthcare reforms have been successful, and people are interested in sort of taking them a step further and, and taking the next leap. The other is that the last several years of healthcare reform have failed to live up to expectations or haven't been successful. So do you all think that framing is fair? Is one of those more true than the other, or is that asking the wrong question? I think that's a good way to look at it. And and if I were to look back on the last nine years plus since uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare was passed, and it's sort of a Rorschach blot. You can look at it and decide, wow, it's worked wonderfully or wow, it's worked terribly, whatever you want, because basically, in my view, it didn't change much of anything at all other than sort of shift around who was in line first for what care and who was going to pay this much and who was going to pay that much. Uh, Prior to Obamacare's passage, we had a certain number of doctors and nurses and hospital beds and laboratory pieces of equipment and, and, and all the other inputs to medicine, and we had a bunch of recipes for combining them into care. The ACA passed. We didn't really change very much about how much we had in the way of resources or what we did with them. People who were against the ACA said, let's, uh, you know, let's reorganize it a different way. But for the most part, most of the plans, including most of the Republican plans, Medicare for all, really want to do the same thing, which is just sort of jumble around what we've already got. So it's, it's whatever you want it to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I would largely agree with that. I mean, ultimately, I think it comes down to what was your starting point here before the ACA was passed? You know, like, from what perspective do you look at it? How is it relevant to you? And as Bob mentioned, roughly half the country gets their insurance through their employer. 
And that was largely untouched by the ACA. There's a few insurance market regulations that impact employers. But largely, if you have ESI, nothing's really changed. And the people enrolled in the individual market, you know, the the primary focus of the ACA, that's roughly, what, 7% of our population. And so it is overall a very small percentage of the population that was impacted. That being said, for many people who you know, were hit with exclusions for their pre-existing conditions or couldn't get coverage at all, you know, for them, they've seen tremendous benefits from this, right? And so they see it as largely successful. That's probably a somewhat small percentage of the population who was truly, you know, uninsured or wasn't getting coverage for those conditions. But it does really provide protections for everyone, right? And so depending on how you see the potential for you to develop a pre-existing condition, even if you don't have one now, you might also see it as a huge benefit. But then there's also plenty of people for whom premiums have risen drastically. Deductibles are unaffordable. And so while they might have, you know, quote unquote insurance, they still don't really have access to care because they can't afford their deductible, their coinsurance, et cetera. And so it really does, I think, spread, you know, there's there's a wide range of impacts that people have experienced. Yeah. And this really, I think, again, as the redistributive aspect of it, uh, you know, we didn't increase the size of the pie. We just changed the size of some of the slices and moved them around. So it certainly, some people benefited tremendously by, you know, they didn't have insurance before. They didn't find it easy to see doctors before, and now they do. But for every hour of doctor time that they use now, if you work through it, somebody out there in the economy is getting an hour less of doctor time. And they're harder to identify. It's harder to point the finger at those of the people who are harmed by it. And you know, economics is full of these things. Public policy is full of these things where it's easy to identify beneficiaries. They're concentrated. You know who they are. You know where to point the TV camera. The people who are on the downside, they're all over the place, and it's kind of tough to say who they are. But they're there. I didn't know that we were going to get here already, but since we're kind of talking about costs and benefits of whether it's the Affordable Care Act or you know any given Medicare for All proposal, since Medicare for All proposals are the hot item right now, do we have any sense about what one of these proposals, maybe even the most general terms, might cost us? Who might pay? How might that look like for the taxpayer, for the person who's getting the health coverage, for the federal deficit, any any of those factors? Do we do we have any kind of certainty about those numbers? Certainty. I have not known of anything <laughs> called certainty in health care. It was uh, a trick question. Else, yeah. Yeah. So you know, I'm kind of proud to work here at Mercatus where my colleague Chuck Blahouse put out the number that became the golden number that everyone on every side of the issue uses. A couple of months ago, he wrote a paper that said he asked a simple question and a very straightforward question. How much more will the federal government have to spend if you pass specifically Bernie Sanders' vision, his version of Medicare for All? And this was last year. Sanders' vision has expanded a little bit, but going back to last fall, Chuck estimated that if everything worked absolutely perfectly, which nothing ever does in you know, when big programs like this, if it if it acted exactly as Bernie Sanders and his supporters thought, at minimum the federal government would have to spend an extra thirty two point six trillion dollars over the next ten years. Chuck was very quick to point out and pointed out repeatedly, though it didn't often get, well, sometimes it didn't get heard by readers or listeners, that that was the absolute rock bottom uh, as to how much it would cost, that 
if some of the if there was some slippage in the supposed economies, it was more likely to be more in the order of thirty seven, thirty eight trillion a year. Well, Bernie Sanders has now expanded it to include long term care. So that adds a few trillion more on. I tend to think that Chuck was very he tried to be very conservative in his estimates, not to not to exaggerate, not to go toward the potential high ends. I tend to think it would probably be quite a bit more than than Chuck's estimates. But whatever it is, it would constitute the single I think there's no dispute on this, single largest tax increase in human history and how that would actually pan out, how it would actually work through the economy is anyone's guess. It's abs- it would be absolutely unprecedented, never been anything like it. It's rare even in sort of proportional terms to find any country that took on that massive a segment of an economy that quickly. Yeah, and I'll just add on to that and similarly brag about one of my colleagues, Jonathan Kiesling. He works for the Center for Health and Economy. And during the 2016 campaign, when Bernie first came out, I'm sorry, I should say Senator Sanders, uh, when he first came out with his proposal during the campaign, it was much less detailed. But Jonathan did a cost estimate back then of what we thought this would look like. Obviously, without all the details, had to make a lot of assumptions but found similar numbers, um, a low range of 31 point something trillion and a high range close to 40. And so very similar to what Dr. Blahouse found. And also, again, that does not include the cost for long-term care services, which have now been added to the bill, which we know will be very expensive. I mean, just looking at the estimates from the Class Act that was included in the ACA, it had to be scrapped because it was going to be so expensive. There was no way, no seeming way to, to pay for it. And so we, we already know and the long-term services detailed here in these new proposals would be more comprehensive than the Class Act. So yes, there will be significant additional costs above and beyond what's already been outlined by Dr. Blahouse. Yep. This might be a good time, Tara. I know, for instance, you've you've done some some research and work on the recent Medicare trustees report that just came out recently. But whether it's kind of sharing some numbers or whether it's kind of a qualitative assessment, what's the state of, of Medicare right now? It's not something that I think a lot of people think about unless you're on Medicare. We just sort of assume like, oh, I'll worry about it when I get there or I'll worry about it when you know my parents or grandparents are enrolling and I have to kind of help them out. What do we know about Medicare as a program? What's working? What's not working? just where we are in today before we do any kind of expansion or changing. Yeah, and I think that's really an important question and I think it's why so many people are so concerned about the potential additional costs of expanding Medicare is we're not even paying for the existing program. And so to expand it to so many more people when we can't even figure out what to do with our current cash shortfalls is really concerning. So I'll throw out a whole bunch of numbers here um, that hopefully some of the policy nerds will appreciate. (laughs) So since Medicare was created in 1965, it has accumulated $5.1 trillion in debt. So it accounts for a third of our overall federal debt. It's quite significant, obviously. And so a lot of that debt comes from, well, it really only comes from Part B, which covers physician services, labs, outpatient services, and then Part D, which is a prescription drug benefit. 
part A, which is the part that everyone talks about, you know, is going to go bankrupt in X number of years. The latest report has it at 2026, same as last year's report, which is obviously quickly approaching. It's only seven years away. Medicare part A will go, quote unquote, bankrupt or will become insolvent because that's the only part required by law to be paid for with existing revenue. So if you see on your payroll, um, you know, your your paycheck there's a line for Medicare taxes. That is to fund the Part A hospital insurance trust fund. And for your hospital benefits, we can only pay out the money that has come in. And so we've had for a while quite a little you know, pot of money there. But as we're having more and more beneficiaries, you know, the baby boomers right. age into Medicare, we've got we're paying a lot more out of that hospital trust fund than we're taking in. And so that you know, surplus that we had built up is quickly being depleted. And so 2026 is the year that we assume the you know, pot of money that has existed will run out and existing income taxes won't be enough to cover the benefits that we need to pay for. And so just looking at like this year's cash shortfall outcome you know, versus income, for Part A, we had a $363 billion shortfall. So in order to make up for that, we would need to increase our payroll taxes that currently fund Medicare Part A by 15%. It's obviously quite significant. And then Part B and D, they're not going bankrupt, but that's because, you know, those parts of the program are able to draw on the general funds in the at the Treasury Department, our general revenues. But they also do run a cash deficit. So if we were to charge beneficiaries actually what it costs to provide them services, for Medicare Part B, we would have to increase the annual premium for every beneficiary by over $4,200. For part, was oh, that all? <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and for Part D, it would be over two thousand dollars. So there's a lot of money. Again, that's how we got to the five point one trillion dollars in debt because a lot of it is just coming from the general revenues. One of my brief stories uh, back when this thing was passed in the 1960s. Originally, it was supposed to be a very modest plan, basically to support a couple nights stay in a hospital. Uh, Lyndon Johnson saw he had the political capital and decided let's let's go for broke. Let's let's really do everything, put everything in it we ever wanted. So his people looked at it, and uh, his top advisor came to him and said, um, "Mr. President, uh, what would you say if I told you that there was going to be a funding gap of?" And I'd have to look back. I think it was he said a hundred million dollars, something like that, something puny. Lyndon Johnson said. I go get my brother. He said, well, why would you go get your brother, Mr. President? And Johnson said, well, see, down in Texas, they were administering the railroad switchman's exam, and this fellow wanted to be a switchman. And the last question on the exam, they asked him, if you see a train coming from the east at 60 miles an hour and another train coming from the west at 60 miles an hour, uh, what would you do? And the fellow said, I go get my brother. He said, well, why would you do that? He said, because my brother's never seen a train wreck before. <laughs> <laughs> and then Johnson looked and said, do it anyway. And what really Seems happened- like a very classic Johnson movie. <laughs> yep, 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 do it anyway. And the actual deficits in it just exploded way beyond the figure that he had been brought on that day. I... I wrote it somewhere years ago. I think it was on the order. It was hundreds of times, obviously, uh, if you look at the real numbers. But they knew from the beginning this was going to be a problem. And I suspect, I suspect if they actually 
tried to get this thing through. I don't want to pre- try to predict politics, but I suspect that they would have a similar situation and the end result would similarly be a lot worse than what they, you know, they'd all be going for their brothers. We did have a couple of states, Vermont and California, you could argue Colorado, which in the last year or two have come pretty close to doing it on a statewide basis. And all of them at the last minute sort of backed off as they looked down into the Grand Canyon of finance and said, we can't do this. You know, our state will become a big bankrupt insurance company if we do it. I'm really glad you took us back kind of the origins of Medicare and, and framed it in that way, sort of what was this originally intended to be? And, and Tara, you even kind of cued us up for this this question earlier when you talked about your interpretation of a lot of Medicare for all proposals are that the goal is universal coverage. So I want to flip that question to you all. And and again, this is me sort of stepping back from the, the muck and the mire of the everyday policy debate and just saying, what should our goals be for healthcare policy reform in this country? So ignore what we have right now. Forget, you know, tweaking this or that here and there. If you were to sit down with a senator or a secretary of health and human services and they were to say, Tara, Bob, tell me how we should reimagine healthcare in the United States. What would you tell them? I think universal coverage really should be the ultimate goal. It should be universally desired. The problem is if it's not done right, it won't be sustainable and it may cause more problems than it solves. But ultimately, I think if we can all agree that that is the goal is to get everyone covered, get everyone access to care or at least you know the ability to afford their care, you know, then we have to think about and we need to accept what are the trade-offs that need to be made in order to get there. Because really, pretty much every policy, you know, when you're trying to solve one problem, you most likely are going to have to make some trade-offs. And so we need to figure out what are those trade-offs and what are we willing to accept. And that's obviously an incredibly difficult conversation. But I think right now there's a lot of people not even acknowledging that we will have to make some trade-offs here. So that's kind of step one. And, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, well, let me say too, hopefully those trade-offs do not come at the expense of access and better quality and innovation, which are legitimate concerns. However, I think a lot of people look at those concerns and point to them as reasons to just say no, rather than obstacles to be addressed and overcome. And so, you know, that's where I would kind of like to see the conversation go is a lot less just yes, no. And okay, how do we how do we get there? How do we acknowledge the shared goal? Because for me, the status quo is unacceptable. It's non-defensible. But I know change is difficult. It's particularly difficult for people who are advantaged by the current system. But I I think and probably a lot of people don't want to hear this. There's a lot of people who are probably unfairly or unjustly advantaged. And a lot of that, I think, comes from the fact that most of our health policy system, just like plenty of other you know, policy areas, it's been done in a largely piecemeal basis. But if we were to step back and start from scratch, knowing what we know now, this is not how we would have built the system, right? Everyone pretty much acknowledges there's a lot of weird, irrational things that have been done and cobbled together and it's resulted in what we have now. And for some people, maybe even the majority of people, it works absolutely fine. But for plenty of people, it doesn't. And so I think if we acknowledge those things um, and if we were able to say, you know, here's a blank slate, which of course you can't do. We're all already here, right? (laughs) But, you know, we, we wouldn't do it in this current way. And so I think we need to, if we can allow people to kind of think about, well, okay, 
okay, I'm unfairly advantaged by the current system. Joe Smith over here is unfairly disadvantaged. And so what can we do to kind of rewrite the system and get to a better place? Well, that's great, Tara. I I would actually, though, step back. I tend to like to kind of poke the bear on this. When we begin by talking about coverage, we have already pretty much lost the conversation. Coverage is important. Universality, I understand that. But let me tell you two anecdotes. So, So first of all, if we go back to, say, the 1960s, early 70s, computers were starting to become fairly important. At the time, computers were giant, room-sized, multimillion-dollar mainframes that had the computing power of a Hallmark singing birthday card. I've seen a, a photo of of a cargo jet loading this massive, massive hard drive uh, on a crane, and it had 64K of, <laughs> uh, of, 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 of RAM. So if... In the 1960s, early 70s, we had said the key is not everyone has access to these wonderful, marvelous devices. Some people have them. These big, rich corporations have these computers. The rest of us don't. So what we need to do is start working on coverage, and we will allocate time, and we will make it so everyone can get onto the computer for a few minutes. And had we taken that tack, what we would now have is a world in which all of us would have a few minutes on a gigantic 64K multi-million dollar machine. In contrast, you look at cell phones. And I like to point out that I used to say 25. I'll say at this point, 30 years ago, I knew precisely one person with a cell phone. It was a big, clunky, sort of like a landline phone in a big leather bag. She was a very wealthy woman with seven houses. (laughs) And uh, the fact that she owned a cell phone was as significant an indicator of wealth as were her seven houses. Today, well in excess of 95% of the Earth's population has cellular signal, and most of the world's population, I think they've gone from me knowing one person to a world in which there are somewhere, well, and this is a figure from a few years ago, over 7 billion cell phones and SIM cards and whatever on Earth. Everybody, the remotest, tiniest villages. I used to do work in sub-Saharan Africa, and it was impossible for me as a traveling banker to get a phone call to my wife. Now, anybody can, the poorest villages. We have achieved universal coverage, but we did so by not trying to achieve universal coverage. Rather, instead, we allowed the market to cut and cut and cut and cut the cost of computing and telecommunication to the point there that universal coverage just happened. It was not the goal, but it was the result. So jumping into healthcare, and people say, well, that's that's telecommunications, it's different. Well, no, it's not different. Uh, technological progress happens the same in healthcare as it does elsewhere. And my go-to example for that is always a hospital chain in India called Narayana. Uh, the CEO of it, it's, it's a series of cardiac hospitals. Special, they specialize in cardiac, but they do everything, cancer, everything. There's about 20 hospitals there and one in the Caribbean. And they have gotten the cost of doing a cardiac bypass operation down from in this country or anywhere in Europe, whatever. It's about $100,000 to do it. At the Nariana Hospitals, it's, it's slightly over $1,000. They have 
among the best results of any hospitals on earth. Their success rates will exceed most of ours. American doctors who go and visit the Narayana hospitals are absolutely floored by what they see. Narayana is a for-profit system. It's actually mostly a cash business. And I'll say that, you know, if the Indian government somehow had mustered the funds to say we want universal access to cardiac bypasses, so therefore, here's a big pot of money and we're going to pay these hospitals $100,000 every time someone walks in with it, a cardiac bypass would cost $100,000. Instead, this company had to operate in the normal market conditions and cut and cut and cut and use the genius of markets and the genius of their employees to find ways of cutting little tiny slices off of the price until, just as in the computing world, they got it far, far below what it would have been a few years ago. The laws of economics work in healthcare as just as well as they do elsewhere. And public policy in the U.S. for about a century, slightly over a century, has been to pretend that that does not happen, but we have stifled the processes. The CEO of that Indian system said that the ideal place on earth to build a hospital is on a ship just outside the territorial waters of the United States. Because, you know, American clientele is great, but once you sail into our waters, our legal, our regulatory system kicks in and you could never ever achieve the economies they've done in India. So as a substitute, they built a hospital in the Cayman Islands, about an hour and a half south of Miami. So Americans can indeed go to the hospital there. It's not quite as cheap there as it is in India, but it's still maybe 25, 30% of the cost of doing it here. And again, with superb results. So the question is, why can't he do it here? And by the way, his partner in the Caribbean is the largest Catholic chain in America. So why is it that the largest Catholic hospital chain in America and most successful entrepreneur in uh, in the world in cardiac feel they cannot build a hospital here and achieve these things? And when you answer that, you start getting coverage in the way that we got for cell phones. Yeah. So I think Bob makes an excellent point. Largely, the, the cost of insurance is based on the cost of care provided, right? And so ultimately, Yes. If we want universal coverage, the easiest way to do that is to just make the cost of care affordable to the point where we can all easily afford the insurance for that care. I think that's obviously also a very difficult conversation, a very difficult thing to achieve. There are so many rules and regulations and policies that just don't make sense and stifle competition. And even some things we've done to try and reduce costs have actually led to, you know, hospital mergers, hospital acquisitions of physician practices, such as the 340B program or ACA models, etc. And really what you've done is increased consolidation, you've stifled competition, and now all of those hospitals, you know, control all of the care in that area, and they're able to basically take advantage of their monopoly and increase prices at no better quality. And so there are a lot of things that need to be done in order to reduce the cost of care that will obviously make the insurance for that care more affordable. But ultimately, probably at the end of the day, we're still going to have plenty of people for whom, even if we get that cost of care down as low as we can, they still won't have access. They still won't be able to afford. And so we can't totally ignore the needs on the insurance side. But that is an, an excellent point that just making care more affordable would go a long way. 
My only addition to this particular part of the conversation is to say I was literally chatting with somebody today who's trying to get some documentation to file for a reimbursement for a health expense through one program or another. And one of the big challenges they're having is their doctor, this particular specialist, doesn't use email. Uh, so they have the option to you know, fax it, to mail it, those sorts mm-hmm. of hard copy things. Uh, but I think sometimes when we're talking about healthcare, it, it's almost shocking how big the gap is between this and perhaps other industries or what, what yes. we're used to in yes. terms of it's great to and, and it's great to ask why that is the case. I happen to go to a doctor who I can send essentially an email and I can uh, – uh, they do have telemedicine. I can – if I want at home in the middle of the night, I can call their practice and talk to a doctor at any time. Very nice thing. The question is why isn't every every practice doing that? Yeah, so Doug Holtzaken, who's the president at AAF, where I work, he actually seems to have come to a very common sense reason uh, answer for that question. And it's because doctors make money by keeping patients, right? And so if they actually make it easy for you to take your medical records to a different doctor, then they've lost your business. And there goes their revenue. And so, you know, again, that's one of those financial incentives. It's just not necessarily set up to benefit the patient. I thought, I see, I was going to try to seize on what Bob said because he started talking about telemedicine and he can email his doctor. And I was like, great, that's our optimistic point we can end on. <laughs> oh, and, I ruined and Tara it. comes ruined it. <laughs> with the harsh reality of the healthcare policy world. Uh, but no, it's, it's a fantastic point. We are kind of wrapping up here. Uh, so I, I want to bring us, bring us to a close, see if we can land the plane. I always like to give folks places they can go online. You guys have written a ton, researched a ton in this topic. Where would you direct folks if they just want to follow your work, learn a little bit more about healthcare, Medicare for all, this current state of Medicare, innovation, any of these topics that we talked about today? Yeah, so all of my work is published on AAF's website. That is AmericanActionForum.org. And you can follow me on Twitter. I try to use it regularly and I sometimes fail. Uh, but my Twitter account is TKO. Those were my maiden initials. Uh, TKO underscore Hayes. Right. And you can go for my stuff, Mercatus.org. Search for my name. It's tricky to spell. G-R-A-B-O-Y-E-S. But it should come up. If you try it enough times, you'll find the right spelling. <laughs> and uh, if you type healthcare in there, that'll certainly bring it up pretty easily. I'm also on Twitter at Robert, uh, that's easy to spell, Robert underscore and then G-R-A-B-O-Y-E-S. And of course, you can find me as always on Twitter at Chad M. Reese uh, with any questions, comments, or feedback. But again, remember, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, the most important feedback is to email Dallas, our producer, at D-F-L-O-E-R at mercatus.gmu.edu with your information, contact information, and most importantly, any feedback that you have for MPD going forward. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, thanks again for everything. Stay smart, stay kind, and keep learning.